Hello and welcome to EndNotes. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books on politics, policy, and more, all written by researchers at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. I'm Rose Huber, and joining me today is Andreas Wiedemann, Assistant Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton. He studies the political economy of advanced democracies with a focus on economic inequality, representation, and political behavior. Today, we're going to talk about his new book, Indebted Societies, which was published by Cambridge University Press. The book helps to explain in part why some people in some countries are more indebted than others and who should be responsible for addressing social risks and even providing social or economic opportunities. Welcome to the show, Andreas. Thanks for having me, Rose. So I know your general research interests around the comparative political economy, which For our non-academic audiences, that means the comparative politics of economic policies and outcomes. You focus primarily on economic inequality, representation, as I said in your bio. I'm curious what led you to pursue a book on indebtedness in particular. Had you found sort of something along the way in your research or, you know, what sparked you to go deeper and write this book? Yeah, so I think I became interested in this topic largely as a consequence or in the aftermath of the financial crisis of 2008. Um, There was a lot of work done that showed that household debt was a big contributor to the crisis. And um, I've always been fascinated with financial markets, how they influence uh, politics or how politics influences financial markets and how these markets influence our everyday lives. And I was thinking As I was thinking about these issues, I noticed that household debt was, in fact, much larger in some countries than in others. And there was a literature out there that suggested that, you know, we should expect debt to be higher in countries with a weaker welfare state because uh, if people, you know, become unemployed or so, they would borrow more. But if you look at the data, you saw that that's actually not the case. And so some countries like uh, Scandinavian ones had actually higher levels of indebtedness. I was surprised and I decided to look uh, more deeply into this issue and I realized that to fully understand what's going on, we really had to study individuals and individual level debt uh, in these countries. That makes sense. And before we go further, can you define what you mean by a welfare state and sort of what's a weaker welfare state? Yeah, so welfare states are basically the combination of various social policy programs. So the most prominent one might be unemployment insurance, for example, but also uh, educational policies. So things that the government provides Uh, for individuals. And so if we think about a a weak welfare state, that would be a a welfare state or a country that doesn't do a lot in terms of the provision of social policy. So the U.S. uh, would typically be a state where we think that welfare policies are relatively weaker or at least not as generous as in some other countries, for Mm -hmm. example, the, the Nordics. That's an, okay. That's very, very helpful. Um, and you know, I know you mentioned earlier the financial crisis, uh, which is one reason that a lot of Americans, at least, uh, got into some serious debt. But yeah. what do you think are sort of the main reasons why people and countries have become so indebted? Yeah, that's a good question. So there are obviously a couple of different reasons why people go into debt and borrow money. So you know, most prominent in the U.S., for example, are, are student loans uh, for people to go to college or university. Some people even borrow money to to pay for childcare or get training. Um, people obviously take out mortgages to buy homes, a uh, very important cornerstone in the middle-class life to build wealth and so on. Um, but people also go into debt, and this is something I focus particularly in the book, 
uh, to address financial gaps that emerge because of volatile incomes, um, because people switch you know, from one job to another job or because expenditures have been rising. Um, and those kind of costs or expenditures have not been met by the welfare state. And so I look at these issues and the dynamics that come about because of these dynamics uh, from a comparative perspective and largely through the lens of the welfare state and social policy. So what I'm really trying to do in the book is to understand what are the causes and consequences of rising household indebtedness uh, and in particular what role labor markets and welfare states play. Credit markets are really crucial because they mirror welfare states in, I think, at least three ways. So they also redistribute resources, um, but not across individuals like the welfare state does, but um, maybe through time. So you can think about uh, redistributing resources from your future, hopefully rich yourself to the present. As you borrow money, you have to repay it. Um, credit markets also provide liquidity. So through credit uh, cards, bank loans, payday loans, and so on that actually help people to address income shortfalls, temporary ones. And then finally, credit markets also allow people to invest in human capital. So I mentioned student loans, for example, but also financial assets such as housing. And so there is a lot of variation across countries, but also across households within countries as to why people go into debt. And what I'm arguing in the book is that this has a lot to do with uh, the structure of labor markets, uh, credit markets, and the welfare state as well. I want to get into the policy theories that you talk about in the book. But before I do, I'm just sort of curious. Did you write this book before the COVID-19 pandemic? The examples you yes. used? Okay. Yes. And so the, the COVID-19 pandemic obviously has brought a lot of these points, um, you know, out again that people that lost their jobs uh, or faced suddenly higher expenditures, you know, had to go into debt. But then you have to make uh, debt payments as well, even though your income has dropped. And so some countries, including the U.S., have started to or introduced at that time uh, debt repayment moratorium and so on. But as these policies are are being retracted, um, people still have to make uh, debt repayments now. Right. Yeah. Maybe we can get into more of that later. But, you know, as you said, access to credit is sort of almost necessary to fully participate in the labor and housing markets, going to college, all those things. You sort of introduce a new social policy theory of borrowing and how it creates this new kind of as you describe it, social and economic citizenship. Can you just sort of unpack that for our listeners? Yes. So I call it a, a social policy theory of everyday borrowing large because I want to think about how debt comes about as a function of the welfare state, basically. And so I argue in the book that people's growing reliance on uh, financial markets and rising debt as a consequence really reflects a fundamental transformation of social rights, responsibilities, and resource allocation. So we know that credit markets can provide opportunities uh, that might mitigate how social status or your parents' wealth or skills affect a whole range of uh, socioeconomic outcomes. But we also know that the emergence of financial markets as a private alternative to social policies or even the public provision of social goods and services has reallocated uh, responsibility for addressing risks. So think about unemployment, for example, uh, but also for harnessing social opportunities, education and so on, um, has reallocated that from the broader shoulders of society in the form of the welfare state onto individuals um, themselves. And so a key question that I'm asking in the book is, um, what shapes patterns of indebtedness across countries and across households? And the answer that I'm trying to provide in the book is uh, that it has a lot to do with uh, the structure of a country's welfare state and the structure of a country's um, credit market. 
So when you think about the welfare state, uh, again, think about unemployment or paid sick leave, parental leave, and so on. Um, that really helps people um, smooth income losses or face uh, any kind of expenditures. Um, but countries obviously differ in how much uh, social policies provide financial protection against uh, these type of risks. So if you get a lot of unemployment benefits in a strong welfare state, then your financial shortfalls in the event of unemployment is obviously lower than if you live in a country where uh, welfare benefits are quite stingy, for example. And so these policies not only differ across countries, but they also differ across groups. So in some countries, uh, low-income people are much more protected by the welfare state than in others. And so that's sort of the, the demand side, if you will, why people might be uh, going into debt to address these shortfalls. But we also have to look at the structure of uh, the credit market. And that really has to do with uh, various regulatory policies and fiscal policies that make it more or less likely that people actually have access to credit. So if you think about the regulation of um, mortgages, uh, how easy it is to take out mortgages or how much down payment you have to provide, um, think about uh, credit card offers. I get a fair amount of uh, letters in the mail every week, um, you know, selling me different credit cards. It's very easy in the U.S. Uh, for people to borrow money and have access to credit, and that's much more difficult in some other countries. And so there's a whole host of policies in place that make it more or less likely uh, that people have access to credit. And so if you put these two elements together, the structure of welfare state and the structure of credit markets, you get different types of outcomes uh, that I talk in the book. And so when the welfare state is weak, then you have a situation where the financial costs of dealing with uh, social risks and financing social investment uh, falls on individuals themselves, um, especially the economically vulnerable ones. And there you have a situation where credit markets really substitute for the welfare state because more people go into debt and address those shortfalls. So the U.S. Uh, is an example of this kind of scenario, if you will. But on the other hand, if um, welfare states and social policies are more comprehensive and in particular address risks for economically disadvantaged groups, low-income individuals, for example, then you have a situation where credit markets and welfare state might actually complement each other. So low-income people can rely on the welfare state. They don't have to go into debt. Higher income individuals, because the welfare state is less comprehensive for them or less generous for them, they can use credit markets to smooth income losses or uh, finance other things. But it doesn't have the same outcome as in the, the previous model, if you will, because low-income people uh, are protected by the welfare state and they they have little reason to go into debt. And then there's a third category, if you will. So these are countries where credit markets are rather limited uh, and restrictive, and it's much more difficult for people to access credit markets. Um, Germany or Italy are, are cases. And so there you have a situation where in the event of unemployment or in the event of uh, unexpected income losses, people are much more likely to draw on savings or utilize family support or cut expenditures, largely because the borrowing option is not there. And so what I'm arguing in the book is that credit really has become a central component of many people's economic lives. Um, it shapes their personal well-being and their economic citizenship. So the idea um, how and, and to what extent people are able to participate in the marketplace, but it also affects how people address economic risks uh, and harness social opportunities and economic mobility. So in a way, access to credit in many countries, not all, is really a prerequisite for fully participating in the market.
Yeah, I kind of want to ask you what is the most ideal scenario, but I think the answer probably depends on how you view social policies and how you view society at large. So maybe instead, we could talk about some of the examples that you go through in your book, um, you know, of an indebted country or a group of countries, how they got so indebted. Yeah, so in the book, I talk about uh, three countries in greater detail, and I've collected a lot of data on them, the US, Denmark, and Germany. And as I alluded to before, they basically exemplify these different scenarios. Um, And so the way to think about debt, at least in my framework, or how I do it is has a lot to do with changes in labor market changes in welfare states and credit markets. So Um, In Denmark and the U.S., for example, it has become a lot easier over the last uh, couple of years, decades even, uh, for people to borrow money, um, largely because of tax incentives and and various regulatory policies. Um, How much, you know, can you borrow? Are there limits in place? Uh, In the U.S., you know, we have interest deductibility uh, for mortgages that doesn't exist in other countries that makes it all more likely that people uh, go out and, and take out loans. And so at the same time, you also see a fair amount of changes in people's life courses and employment patterns. Um, We see more frequent and shorter spells of unemployment, for example, uh, more frequent switches from one job to another that is not necessarily associated with unemployment, but, you know, volatility in incomes, uh, various forms of leaves, uh, of absence, and so on. But the issue that I highlight and others have highlighted too is that our social policy framework often doesn't meet these new realities anymore. So the way social policies were designed do not necessarily match these new realities, if you will. And so this is something um, we typically call policy drift, where these policies have not been adapted or updated to a changing environment. So, for example, if you have an unemployment insurance system that requires a long work history, let's say you have to have uh, had a job for like three years, um, But if you're now in a situation where you switch your jobs more often and you become unemployed more often, those policies will no longer provide the same kind of financial support as they did before. And so as a result, in the U.S., for example, you have a lot more people that rely on credit markets to cope with uh, financial consequences of those labor market risks, uh, but also of life course choices, uh, leave, education and so on, having a child. Um, in light of a weak and often incomplete welfare state. So Americans tend to borrow money to address income losses and smooth out income fluctuations that are caused by unemployment, uh, fewer work hours, volatile work hours, or non-standard work environments, um, work arrangements, sorry. Um, So in the book, for example, I use uh, regional variation in unemployment insurance generosity. So there's a lot of variation in how high these benefits are and for how long they are going to be paid out. And you can see that individuals that become unemployed in a state where these benefits are less generous, they tend to borrow a lot more money, suggesting that there is this kind of compensatory effect going on. Um, And you also notice that debt leverage, so that's a common metric used uh, to look at your debt levels uh, per income. So, you know, how exposed to debt you are, that is actually quite high in the U S across the income distribution, but particularly concentrated among low income individuals, as I said before, largely because the welfare state is not very uh, generous for this type of group. And that's very different from a country like Denmark, for example, where the labor market is, you know, almost equally flexible and people switch jobs quite frequently But the key difference is here that the welfare state and the social policy environment is a lot more uh, generous and comprehensive, especially for lower income individuals. And so 
Um, in Denmark, you have paid sick days, paid parental leave, and so on. Um, that makes it a lot more likely that people do not incur any kind of financial losses. Um, and that's very different from the United States, for example, um, where having a child or um, having to use uh, sick days um, often incurs a lot of financial, um, has a lot of financial consequences. And so if you put these things together, if you think about the way labor markets have changed and employment trajectories have changed, you get different outcomes uh, in those different countries. That's a really good concrete example of the um, childcare, sick time, all that sort of stuff. So I appreciate that. I'm sort of curious, where do we go from here? What are sort of the main policy implications of your work, both for the U.S. and for other countries? Yeah, so there's a lot to say, I guess. Um, the, main, <laughs> the main goal of, of the book um, is really to highlight the emergence of financial markets and credit markets uh, in particular as a private alternative to the welfare state and how that has gradually but steadily transformed the relationship between individuals, states, and markets. And so there are a couple of ways uh, that has occurred. So the most important, I would say, is that, and I alluded to that before, it has further reallocated responsibility um, for addressing these types of social risks um, and also harnessing uh, social opportunities away from society to individuals. And so credit markets privatize a lot of these opportunities. You know, if you take out loans to go to college, for example, it, it privatizes the opportunities that you get, basically. And it allows borrowers, in a way, to take full ownership over the fruits of their investment, uh, so to speak. But at the same time, it also privatizes risks. So if you take out loans or if you use your credit card because you became unemployed and have to make ends meet or smooth your income losses, you are now uh, incurring this type of risk. It's no longer the welfare state that does that. And so it really pushes the burden of debt repayment onto borrowers and increases their downstream economic insecurity because we, we talked about this before in the context of COVID-19. Even if your income uh, drops or you become unemployed, you still have to make debt repayments. And so relying on credit markets as a private alternative to the welfare state really shapes uh, people's social policy preferences. So I have a, a chapter on that in the book as well, um, where easier access to credit really allows people to self-insure against risks and knowing that you can borrow money to smooth income fluctuation allows you or gives you a sense of uh, economic security, often a false sense of economic security and perceived wealth even, which might actually lower your demand for uh, social insurance or support for the welfare state. But at the same time, credit markets also allow individuals to opt out of the welfare state. So again, the example of education, I think, is good. I mean, if you um, take out loans to go to university, a private university, for example, or a public one, you might no longer support um, tax dollars going to education in, in other domains because you basically privately paid for it. And so that has a couple of ramifications that could undermine social solidarity or overall support for the welfare state. The second thing I want to highlight is that in delegating responsibility away from the state or the welfare state to the individual, this process also shifts social rights accountability and eligibility from the welfare state, which we think as a is a democratically legitimate institution, to private, largely unaccountable lenders, banks, for example. And so the welfare state is really based on a set of eligibility criteria that are, you know, politically and democratically uh, defined, and they grant access and define conditions under which claims can be made. And they are, in you know, many cases, legally enforceable rights. 
Uh, and that's not the case for credit markets. So their access to loans or whether or not you can actually take out a loan is based on creditworthiness. And that obviously changes, um, you know, depending on the lender, it changes based on your income, your wealth, your employment status, and obviously allows for uh, exclusion and discrimination against different types of groups. The shift away from welfare states to credit markets um, to address risk and to seize opportunities has a lot of consequences there. Um, and one of those consequences is that it increases people's dependence on market participation. So when we think about the welfare state, we typically think that the welfare state decommodifies or you know makes people uh, less likely to rely on, on the market. It, it frees them, if you will. You get these benefits and it allows you to look for a new job, for example. But credit really has the opposite effect because you know that you took out a loan and you have to make debt repayments in the future. And so credit does only look like a social policy function. Earlier, I mentioned these like three functions. But in reality, credit is not an insurance and credit is not anywhere close to a welfare state. So it really has different functions. And finally, speaking of, of um, you know, new forms of, of discrimination and equality, I mean, we know that um, credit markets and the growing reliance of these credit markets can increase uh, inequality in access um, and other forms of inequality. So we know there's um, race-based discrimination, for example, um, the, the famous example from the past is redlining, but even now we have discrimination in, in credit and housing markets. Um, we know that employers uh, use credit scores to see which uh, applicant they want to hire. Even landlords use credit scores to do that. Some states have made that illegal. Um, we also know that low-income people pay more for using credit, so their interest rates are higher. So if you switch away from the welfare state to credit markets, you basically introduce all these types of new inequalities. That really changes the way resources are allocated and how risk is, is basically distributed um, across society. You, you asked me what, what kind of policy implications uh, you know, this type of work has. And so I think from a policy perspective, the book raises the question how we can make credit markets and welfare states work together to ensure a more fair and egalitarian financial system and at the same time to also uh, safeguard and strengthen the social policy net. And so what, what I would highlight here is, you know, maybe two things or two goals. Um, so the first I think is that we do want to make sure or ensure that individuals, all individuals can equally access and fairly engage in credit markets. And that's not the case right now. Um, it obviously varies across countries, but that could be one goal. Um, there have been a couple of ideas out there to, for example, strengthen public banks uh, or invest more in community banking, um, basically looking at lenders that are not necessarily motivated by, by profit, um, but also have social goals, for example. Or alternatively, you could think about ways in which lenders uh, could share some of the credit risk, especially during periods of economic distress. Um, you know, think about the housing crisis, um, but also now during COVID. Um, so that would be the first element I would highlight. And then the, the second goal, um, if you think about the social policy front, um, would be to say, okay, we really need a renewed effort to invest in policies that address social risks. Um, but those policies should be designed in a way uh, that they are portable across the life course and maybe don't depend so much on unemployment or the employment history, not just to reflect changes in the labor market that we have um, seen right now. And then you want to place an emphasis on policies that strengthen and expand social investment. So these are things that we 
uh, think in terms of um, childcare, education, parental leave, and so on, uh, just so the, that the costs and, and burdens are not necessarily shouldered by um, the most vulnerable, but that they're equally and equitably distributed across um, society. And oftentimes, you know, when you talk about debt, there's a normative discussion around it where, where people think debt is inherently bad or inherently good. And I think what I'm trying to do with the book is to say that, you know, it's neither here nor there, but you have to really understand, you know, why people go into debt and what kind of um, purpose it, it fulfills. Well, Andreas, we're just about out of time. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Oh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Likewise, Indebted Societies is available now through Cambridge University Press, Amazon, and wherever else you find books. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rose. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in to EndNotes, currently available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. This show is edited and produced by me, Rose Huber. We also want to thank our visual designer, Egan Jimenez. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to EndNotes, a series produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. The content you've just heard does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or Princeton SPIA.